0: Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. One of the most basic human rights is access to the court and the right to a fair trial. But if you can't afford a lawyer and you're having a legal crisis, then that right can be illusory. Law centres, local lawyers who help people who can't afford to employ a lawyer in crises in their lives, are one of the most important bulwarks against breaches of that right. So today we're going to be talking about law centres and I've got three fantastic guests to do so. Peter Candler who's a solicitor and the founder 50 years ago this year of the North Kensington Law Centre, Annie Campbell who's the current director of the North Kensington Law Centre and Julie Bishop, director of the Law Centres Network. I want to give special thanks to Jude Habib, who's the director of Sound Delivery, an award-winning digital storytelling company who came up with the idea for this episode and helped make it happen. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. If you're interested in studying law at university this year, you can still find places at Goldsmiths. Apply now goldacuk forward slash clearing. If you want to support this podcast and help make it sustainable, then please consider chipping in a few pounds a month at www.betterhumanpodcast.com. And you can also find there all of the resources and links which we referred to in this episode. It's really good to have you on. Um, I wanted to have this episode to talk about law centres generally and, 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 and particularly the law centre which you set up and have been so sort of instrumental in, um in North Kensington. Um and, and I wanted to ask you first of all, um I, I, I've actually just watched the um the little film which is um nineteen seventy three from the BFI website, um with with right. you in it, which is on the website.
1: so the one with the um breaking open the door, is it? Yeah, where where
0: you actually you where, where it says you're you're not the ordinary kind of solicitor and then it shows you yeah. breaking down the door with an axe. <laughs> yeah. And and and, and <laughs> do you do you think that was was a good metaphor for for you know what you were trying to do at the time?
1: Well, of course. Of course. We had to fight the most evil landlords. that was a uh, new left fighting for people in North Kensington. Uh, and out of that came three advice centres, which I cycled to, one to the other. Um, and I realised, and others realised, that you cannot um, properly represent people by an advice centre only, because you have no teeth and you can't bite the opposition. And that's how we started talking about a full time organisation paid lawyers, so you could go to court and represent people. Uh, so that's how the ideas started to float around. Very briefly, that's how it started to float around. And the other thing was, of course, people were never represented at employment tribunals um, unless, a, unless they were well off or in a union, and they weren't represented. And attempting to get social security, although it's even worse now. Um, and as for police stations, of course it was normal for you to get beaten up by the police and then be charged with assaulting police, and of course you were framed as well. And there were no lawyers ever present. And if you watch the earlier television programs um, uh, about the police behaviour, you'll never see a lawyer present. So. I believe I was the first one to go to a police station regularly because I wasn't paid to do so. Uh, And solicitors would only go, most of them, except very few kind-hearted or committed ones. They'd never go. Solicitors would never go to the police station. You'd never have representation. You'd never have protection. I think it could be summed up by... um, uh, a junior architect who worked on the Sydney Opera House, who said that he was standing in the charge room and the police were casually hitting him. It wasn't until they heard my voice that they stopped hitting him. So it was quite a normal thing to do. So that's what was behind the setting up of the law centre. Uh, and as as for the conditions in which people lived, you've only got to... Uh, See the World in Action film made in 7071 on the Law Center. To see the terrible conditions in which people lived in holes in the roofs, in the walls, no running water, no proper lavatories, filth on the pavements. The whole thing was disgusting, and North Kensington was one of the poorest areas in the country. So we were surrounded by poverty, by exploitation, and we Um, a group of us got together and decided to attempt to form what we called a law centre. And Michael Zander came back from uh, America with the idea of law centres as well, and that helped. And then we got enormous publicity, which helped as well. And I have to say this for The Sun, uh, that the best headline was, Poor Law in a Butcher Shop because the hooks were still
0: on the wall in the butcher shop when we moved in. <laughs> poor, poor, poor lawyers in a butcher shop. Uh, poor
1: law in a butcher
0: poor shop. Poor law in a butcher shop. Well, they've always got a knack for the headlines, say what you want. Um, Peter, what What was your background? Where, where were you, what, what were you practising in before you did this? And what was it that made you move into um, this area?
1: Well... I can still feel the clout around the ear I got from a copper when I was caught shoplifting when I was 10 or 11. Um, and I had to write a crawling letter of apology to my um, a parents' landlady because um, I threw my bike at her when I was a young teenager um, because she was harassing my mother. Uh, and when we, uh, and in Willesden, my parents were quite poor at the beginning and my mother, we had to share a bathroom and lavatory with other tenants. My mother had to clean the bathroom and lavatory. Um, my dad got into shipping and, and eventually started to make money. And by the time I got to LSE, we um, uh, they actually owned a house. Um, and their particular exploitation by landlords um, Stopped, but there was that background to it. And then um, I got involved in New Left and New Left Review, luckily for me, because um, there was a coffee bar called The Partisan in Soho, which was run by New Left for about four years. And a friend of mine was articled opposite, and he said, There's this cafe and they play chess in the basement. So I went over went into the basement and I started to take an interest in the politics that was going on around me. And um, Stephen Rose, Professor Stephen Rose, a biochemist, he came up to me and told me about New Left and I joined on the spot. And for me, and for me the lectures from Hobsbawm, E.P. Thompson, Stuart Hall and many others was like a, a curtain being raised. Into the great world, and I started to understand what was going on and where I was in the world. That that was my awakening, and um, so it was out of that. And then we went in to fight Rackman, and he and we beat Rackman, and um, he offered us three houses to lay off him. Um, and uh, with hindsight, of course, we should have taken the offer. <laughs> We've could have, all could been rich by now. Could have funded
0: um, the Law Centre for, uh, for the rest of the time.
1: So, yeah, so so that so that's how it really began, how I got involved in North Kensington. And out, out of that, and my experience as a lawyer, I was lucky. when I was articled in a 150-year-old probate and trust firm. That was very, very boring. And um, we had and I started to dislike rich clients intensely. It was so bloody arrogant. The first the first firm I was after, I was employed by when I qualified, if I'm a good solicitor, a guy called RSW Pollard made me one. Firm called Pollard, Stalabras, and George Martin. And he was um socialist and a vegetarian and um, Uh, and he acted for a trade union, the film trade union, the ACTT. And I learned an enormous amount from him about how to prepare cases, how to relate to clients, all sorts of things like that. So partly the partisan and partly Pollard sort of um, helped me form my views and myself.
0: Once you'd set up the law center and you, and you got some decent publicity, it seems from the newspapers and the um, and, and the yeah, we
1: got enormous publicity and, yeah.
0: and, and the documentary. Um, how did you, did you feel like it did what you what it what you wanted it to do? What it was set up to do? Did it achieve its aims?
1: Well, nothing is ever perfect in this world, and um, but on the whole, I think the law center. Did- we did achieve our aim. We, we acted for a, for a large number of people in North Kensington, um, and in those days, we we according to our charitable trust, we could only act for people who lived or worked in North Kensington. But it, it did have ripples outside as well. I mean, because of the publicity, I had a farmer from Wales come travel all that way for advice. Someone came down from Manchester. So, you know, we got we got a larger public aware of the, uh, of the idea of law centres. The, the law centre, I think, grew to a staff of about fifteen people, and it did do an enormous amount of good for the people in North Kensington. Um, and um, it, you know, and I represented people in court uh, overnight, and I stopped landlords. well I say I, we stopped landlords. From illegally evicting tenants, um, it, it was the landlords and their solicitors were so used to riding roughshod over unrepresented tenants that by the time we finished with them, and a couple of the other new law centres did as well, um, uh, the the uh, like Camden and Brent and um, and one or two others. Um, the Law Society had to run a crash course for landlord solicitors on the law because they didn't know any law. They didn't need to know any law. Uh, so, yes, I think we did achieve a lot. And we woke up lawyers, and we, I think we inspired young lawyers into doing community law rather than um, commercial work.
0: I, I'm I'm going to bring in um, Julie Bishop, who is um, who is the director of the Law Centers Network, and I want to ask you, Julie, the you know you're, you're listening there to to the beginnings of the movement. It's now something much bigger, um, and and do you do you think that the North Kensington was the was the 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 standard bearer and um, for something which has become a, a wide movement, a national movement?
2: Uh- It certainly is a standard bearer and it's certainly seen amongst all law centres as the um, uh, pilot light for the law centre movement. It's very much recognised as that. And uh, indeed, um, although occasionally there is an argument about whether a law centre in Wales was, in fact, Adamstown was, in fact, the first one. But uh, anyhow, that that's for posterity. Um, in terms of uh, sparking a movement, that is certainly the case. And as Peter has been talking and uh, talking about the way people were treated, the acting with impunity, uh, where we are today, I have been reflecting. How critical it is today as we find ourselves in the midst of this COVID crisis uh, for the role of law centres. For them, they have the the, um, type of bad treatment that Peter referred to, Uh, certainly the beating up by the police, etc. I can't comment on that, but I can comment on the treatment of tenants by unscrupulous landlords. And I can say that illegal evictions in the midst of the COVID crisis is continuing. Uh, A lot of the reasons for why law centres began are in fact being illuminated by this crisis as we see it impacts on people unequally, those with fewer means, those who Uh, work in uh, the informal economy etc are those who are the most hard hit and they're the people who law centres traditionally assist but what we're also finding at this point in time is that there are a lot of people who are actually losing their livelihoods losing their homes so the need for law centres is in fact growing but to go right back to the beginning one of the things that has happened in recent years, and and particularly throughout this crisis, but also throughout the hostile environment, through ten years of austerity, as law centres have watched the, their communities become more impoverished, more disadvantaged. In situations like law centres never thought of see people. In situations where clients arrive at the law centre not having eaten in extraordinary food poverty. The need for law centres and that fighting spirit of law centres and that standing up for those who are being knocked over by the state is so needed at this point in time.
0: And how, how many law centres are now operating across the UK?
2: 40. There, there are 40 law centres uh main centres across the UK, but there uh, a number of law centres also have offices or outreach locations in other areas. Uh, traditionally, law centres began in cities and in, um, I suppose you call them industrial towns, uh, and over the years, the number of law centres has increased and decreased. Uh, according, basically according to funding and where they can find uh, financial security really. But in recent years, law centres are growing again. The number of law centres are slowly increasing, but also outreach is extending as well as law centres moving into areas that haven't previously had a service or where a law centre has closed and another is reopening. An example of this is Southwark Law Centre in the south of London has uh, two, one month ago reopened or we voted in as a member in its own right, Lewisham Law Centre, which is a branch of Southwark Law Centre, but it's the re-establishment of a law centre in an area where one previously closed.
0: And can you just give, for, for people listening who might not have a strong sense of what a law centre does, um, we've talked about bashing down the doors to, you know, uh, nasty landlords um, and that sort of thing. But what, what's, a, what's a typical kind of case or what's the, maybe the, the few typical kinds of cases which come through the door of a law centre at the moment?
2: Peter mentioned poor law in a butcher shop. Um, And the term poor law is an American term. Uh, Here we refer to it as community law or social welfare law. But I go back to the term poor law because where that came from really describes today what the issues are and who the clients are of law centres. And that is people who don't have money every day are struggling Around various legal problems in their lives. They're juggling about contracts, they're juggling about paying things, they're prey to unscrupulous people, they're caught up in in, in informal arrangements. And so it's the law of what others call everyday life that law center clients have. So, homelessness, threat of loss of house, failure to be paid correctly, uh, landlords who won't return rental bonds or deposits, um, employers who won't pay wages correctly, employers who are sacking pregnant women, uh, people with insecure immigration status, people who have no recourse to public funds even though they may well be a legal immigrant to the country. Once people have one problem, it tends to escalate. So the most common triggers of people needing our assistance are long-term illness, loss of a job or family breakdown. And at the moment, we're seeing all of those things happening and being accentuated through the COVID crisis and hence the number of people needing assistance from law centres has increased. But sadly, sadly, we have a whole new area of work that's come out of the COVID crisis, and that's assisting people with bereavement. Um, It's about paying for funerals. It's about being able to access their loved one's property that may be in a flat and the landlord won't let anyone in to get it. Uh, there's any number of new issues arising
0: out of the COVID crisis as well. So I'm going to move on to Annie Campbell-Viswanathan, who is the current director of the North Kensington Law Centre, which Peter set up um, 50 years ago. Um, Annie, can you give us a a background into what North Kensington, where North Kensington is at now? How many people are there? What's your typical day? And you know, what, what can you see happening in the future?
3: Okay. So, at the moment, because of COVID, we've, um, we've sort of had to sort of adapt, if you like, quite quickly to new circumstances. Um, but, you know, that's something we've done in the past. After Grenfell, we adapted very quickly to diverting, you know, resources into assisting people with Grenfell. We're at the moment, we're, we're assisting Windrush people as well. Um, this is projects on top of our day-to-day, if you like, our bread and butter work. Um, so, we have got lawyers um, specialising in housing law, immigration law, criminal defence, which is we're the only law centre that does criminal defence, uh, welfare benefits and employment. And we are we have just started to reopen our reception because uh, we found what we found is that our client group are very often um, digitally excluded, or they may have problems where English isn't their first language or mental health problems where they just simply struggle with the bureaucracy of a human life in the West. So, um, we have started to reopen and we are seeing some clients face to face. We have just recruited two additional solicitors as a result of the MOJ LCN grant in order to cover the um, increase in work that we're dealing with as a result of COVID. Um, so, there's 14 of us now in all um, doing these various different sort of areas of law. We, um, we've, we very much, as Julie says, we, we very much work... Um, across disciplines, as it were. So very often, for example, an immigration client we've got at the moment um, has also, she's an asylum seeker, she's got a husband, she's just had a child and they're in one bedroom with a toilet in the sitting room in a cupboard. And so we are able to take that up with um, the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea and deal with their housing issues as well. The father, who's a British citizen, also has disabilities, and we have been able to help him to um, apply for PIP and the various benefits that he's entitled to. Um, So, you know, you can see how the way we work is very much a holistic approach to our clients
0: and obviously the the the, this government the last government in fact the government Mm. before that and the government before that have been chipping away very significantly at at the public funding for for this kind of work so Mm. for people who can't afford Um, can't afford a lawyer there's been a system in place called legal aid since 1948 Mm. so for 72 years now but it's not what it once was and has that had a significant impact on the kind of work that you are able to do
2: it it's
3: had a massive impact it had a massive impact I think Julie will be able to answer this more but immediately after the um, cutbacks in legal aid which came into effect in um, 2013 LASPO um you know, a lot of law centers really struggled to um, adapt to the loss of income. And, you know, the reality is it's very, very difficult to make even enough money to break even under legal aid. So, we have to supplement our... um, legal aid income with other sources of income. So, you know, I spend a lot of my job is about trying to find grants to, to cover areas that are no longer covered. So, for example, employment law, it's absolutely critical. Having, you know, your rights respected as an employee is a human right. And yet um, there is no legal aid now. There's no legal aid at tribunal. And um, so, we have to rely on grants in order to continue to deliver that service and I know a lot of law centers ended up stopping employment law services because it just couldn't you know there was no money out there to continue it uh, welfare benefits there, there's no there's no money for welfare benefits and I don't know if you saw in the press today that the government was it 120 million they're spending. Um, at welfare benefit appeals, I, I'm, you know, I need to check that figure. But either way, the 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 poor decision within um, government departments um, extends beyond the Home Office and the hostile environment, and is very much present in um, the Home Office and um, their social security decisions. So it it's been it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle, and um, you know our our, um, our fortunes wax and wane, as it were.
1: But I but I make two points. Yeah, go for it. The first one was as a teenager after the Second World War, I was I read Dickens and Hardy, and the terrible exploitation of both the um, peasant community and the Working class community in the, in in the cities and towns, and I thought to myself, well, at least, you know, we don't have that now. But of course, we, we seem to be going back towards towards that pain and that suffering. The the, the other thing is that um, what we haven't mentioned are management committees. Law centres, unlike private solicitors, have management committees ideally made up of a reasonable proportion of local people. And I think it's very, very important that local people can have a direct input on the type of service and the type of work law centres are doing. So I think management committees are very important.
2: Yeah, um, And, Adam, just to add to that, if I may come in, uh In There are two comments I'd like to make. The first is specifically in relation to welfare benefits um, that you mentioned. Nationally, law centre work, 40% of it, over 40%, is driven by mistakes made by government departments and local authorities. Of those mistakes, 25%... Uh, or altogether 25% of the demand of people needing assistance are as a result of wrong decisions by DWP that is where DWP has made a mistake furthermore we find that at law centers over 90% of appeals are won when taken when taken so that that gives you an extent of the of the mistakes that are being made at uh, in relation to people's income and that's one of the big drivers of Law Centre's work. But you mentioned uh, about funding, the impact of austerity, where do we find ourselves now? Um, I think that the, uh, the LASPO, the legal aid changes in 2012, had an enormous impact on law centres. 20% of our members closed. In fact, we were were pleased that 80% survived. Uh, But on top of the legal aid cuts, remember we've had 10 years of austerity and that has hit local authorities particularly hard and local authorities are the other funder or have been in the past the other funder of law centres. So over this 10-year period, law centres' income has shrunk by 50% or 60% in fact, but that varies from law centre to law centre. We're now seeing it growing again for a number of reasons. However, the thing to remember about the impact of austerity, the impact of government cuts and changes in, in, in the various programs isn't simply the impact it's had on law centres, but rather Peter just mentioned management committees. When someone arrives at a law centre, as I mentioned before, they've had a life event happen to cause them to have legal problems. But resolving that legal problem without addressing the other issues or without seeking assistance for the other issues which aren't legal is problematic. So law centers traditionally have worked fairly closely with other with other community groups who provide additional support for the people they work with. And indeed, most people arrive at law centers because it's another community group, another small community support group that has brought them along or sent them there. And what we've found with austerity is that a number of what is the grassroots safety net for people living in vulnerable situations have disappeared. And so it isn't simply the impact on law centres funding that has made our work more challenging. It's also the loss of a number of other support organisations that are grassroots, often purely voluntary, but relied on government support in various ways that have also disappeared. And that has resulted in law centres and law centre staff who sometimes have worked in law centres for 20 years or more, saying that they have never seen people, and this is prior to COVID, living in such difficult circumstances. Uh, uh, To add just one more thing about funding too and, and, and the ability to afford a lawyer, You mentioned 1948. Uh, Law Centres Network has just published a report that's uh, based on some research that was done by Donald Hirsch, who's a researcher from Luckborough University. And that found that in fact, you don't need to be very poor to not be able to afford a lawyer. It found that 76% 76% of working single parents with one primary school age child cannot afford a lawyer so that's people in work 51% of working couples who perhaps have a newborn child cannot afford a lawyer and in fact 44% of working people with no children cannot afford a lawyer so the gap between what legal aid covers now and what law centres are able to provide and what people can afford is actually wider than it's been since the 1940s.
0: The Better Human Podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month that's just over two pounds via our patreon that's patreon.com forward/ better human and if a couple of hundred people do that then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects I just want to pick up with some on something Julie said about the the holistic nature of the work that you, um, provide that the help that you offer um, and for someone who hasn't experienced a legal crisis in their lives um, or maybe hasn't seen what law centres do can you give an example of or a couple of examples of people who come into your law centre and have been sort of through the mill in a way and and have, and, and have having this sort of multi-prong crisis and the role that you can play along with other institutions to resolve that for that person or at least put them on the right road
3: yeah sure. Um so um we frequently um get people who come in for example um you know migrants we have quite a big immigration team and um they might come in and um we we will through talking to them realize that for the past however long They've been living on next to nothing. So um, we have a quite big immigration team and we have um, been seeing quite a lot of migrants um, who have, we've found when we've sort of talked to them that for about 18 months prior to them finding us, um, they have been struggling to survive with, you know, they might have leave, for example. I have one particular case where... um, a a woman and her child, her young child, a six-year-old, had um, supported her husband through his terminal illness and he had died. He had 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 leave to be here and they'd had leave to be here and the government gave this woman 30 months leave um, with no recourse to public funds. And for 18 months, she had been living with her bereaved child on various friend's sofas going around the houses. And she was referred to us actually through a local school who, um, who I had helped previously with another domestic violence case. And um, so, we were able to basically ask the government to remove the no recourse to public funds prohibition. They said no. So we um, challenged them. We we um, took them to court and we said that, you know, their application of the rules was unlawful and the judge agreed with us. But, you know, this took another six to eight months, as I recall, to deal with. Um, and eventually we got the prohibition on re- um, public funds lifted and we were able then to support her with a homeless application and with her benefits applications. And we were also able to refer... her her daughter to a bereavement counsellor and, you know, sort of to help the family more broadly with their kind of, if you like, their psychological needs. During the whole of the no recourse to public funds um, dispute with the government as well, we were providing um, food vouchers so that they could access the food bank. So that gives the sense of one case where we've been able to provide a very, very broad service. Um, Another case recently, I found a woman just sitting crying on the doorstep and she had been, she was in, and this is another area that's that's quite complex, is she'd been in an informal renting arrangement with a so-called friend who'd asked her to leave that day um and we were able to um get her in or you know get the, get hold of the right people and um get her into um temporary accommodation that that day so they're just two two examples of the sort of things we can do
0: J- Julie do you want to talk about um any examples that from your work um along the lines that Annie just spoke about yeah um
2: there 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 are a- Across law centres nationally, uh, there there are lots of examples of law centres working in collaboration with with other agencies. Some of it's formal and some of it's informal. Um, There's one law centre, for instance, that uh, sends uh, sends a lawyer along to a playgroup of a particular community uh, because that's where the the parents are sitting around talking, they and where various issues come up that they can address at at the spot. That's one example. Another example is we are working um, in conjunction with a charity that assists adults with intellectual disability to live independently. Um, so we work hand in hand with that charity. Uh, providing various sorts of legal support, partly for the uh, for their service users, but also for their carers who support their service users. So it can be done very informally, or it can be done in quite a structured way. Because how what we say, well, the way law centres talk about themselves is that they're using the law as a tool for change. And so that's not simply uh, a change of law, but rather it's helping people to take up the opportunities within their life that are blocked because their legal problems are left unresolved. And to do this and to do it effectively, we do it in collaboration with others locally, informally and nationally formally.
0: I want to finish off by talking about the, the future of law centres um, and this idea of giving people who can't afford uh, the law access to the law. One of the things, one of the things that often strikes me um, with law centres and legal aid um, and this kind, this area of law, is that there is this national narrative about the national health service, um, and rightly so, about the importance of giving people health, free healthcare at the point of use, um, and how it's a kind of, I think it's probably the broadest um, support for a basic human right that we have in our society is this support for the NHS, arguably at least. But that doesn't seem to have been uh, read across to um, needing access to legal help in these terrible situations that people find themselves in. Do you think there's any way of, of changing that? Do you think there's any way of changing the, changing the narrative? And maybe if I can start with, with Peter, because you were there at the beginning of this movement. Um, do you think that people will ever see access to law in the same way that they've come to see access to health as a basic human right?
1: I doubt it, because it's a, it's a problem. When people are in trouble of any kind, then they turn to a lawyer if they can, and it's only then they start to think about rights and their rights and their human rights. They don't think about other people's rights and human rights. But with health, everyone suffers from health problems from time to time. So they can see the health service in a, in a much broader spectrum. Law is seen as a much narrower spectrum. And, you know, if you take crime, many people think, you know, if the police arrest someone, they're guilty and they deserve what they get they shouldn't have any help kind of thing, you know so I, I do think it is a it is a problem, and people don't realize really how so many people and their friends and their relatives and their acquaintances suffer as a result of not having legal help. It, I, I don't know exactly how we get that across. It, it is a problem and it needs to be met somehow.
0: Julie, do you want to add to that?
2: I, the whole narrative about lawyers in society is problematic. You know, they're they're referred to by the government um, in a derogatory way. They're referred to as fat cats. Um, People, activist lawyers, as we've we've heard
0: (laughs) in the in the last few days. activist lawyers who exactly, who are who are, exactly. st- so who are stopping people being deported that's the new the new the new enemy
2: that's right exactly so that's the context in in which we work but in fact everybody relies on the law and knows and knows they do and i think if we think back to uh the fabulous moment when the supreme court Found against the government about the paroding of government. That was such a moment where the whole nation learnt the power of the rule of law and that nobody is above that. And I think that people have that expectation, but it, it's tainted with suspicion of lawyers. And so that is really the challenge for law centres is to get public trust that we are lawyers but we're lawyers for them. We're on their side and indeed I think lawyers are are in fact very badly cast um, in the way they are cast. But regardless, our challenge is for people to understand that to have access to the law, to have access to a lawyer is a basic right and it is that access that ensures that they are treated fairly and that they can have a fair chance. And, in fact, if you think of um, the way the courts and the system of British law is is used in the UK by wealthy people from around the world who see the UK as the place where you can get a fair hearing uh, and so they conduct a lot of their contract disputes here, for example, there is the right for every single individual to have that chance to stand up for their rights before a court of law, no matter what their ability to pay is. And that was the foundation of the legal aid system which recognised that. And over the years, that understanding of the need for the protection of the law and the strengthening of the rule of law has been lost. But what can we do about it? That's the real thing. I think basically it's frightening for people. People A lot of people don't go to doctors because they're scared about finding bad news. Similarly, a lot of people are just scared to think that their life could unravel in the way that they may be homeless. But one of my daughters who's uh, who's still at university she's constantly contacting me to try and get help for her friends and they're invariably problems to do with housing and being treated badly as young people are by tenants and uh, one of her young student friends said to me the other day really julie everybody, everybody needs to know about law centres and everybody needs a law centre because I did everything I could and nothing happened until the law centre wrote that letter for me. So I think what she's recognising there is the authority that a lawyer has that just a young person doesn't have on their own and together by harnessing that, and the authority of the lawyer, they can get fair treatment and they can have trust that throughout life they can be treated fairly and do and assert all their rights, all their human rights. Without access to a lawyer, human rights mean nothing.
3: Um, Well, I totally agree with that. I think that unless everybody in a society has access to the law, um, you can't have democracy. So I think it has um, a very profound impact upon the world we live in. And I think it's critical that lawyers are available to people to exercise their rights, um, especially as states become bigger, more complex. And um, I, I'm being careful about the words I want to use here, but, but um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, more draconian, um, I Think when we look at COVID, for example, somebody is going to have to pay for this. And um, austerity, you know, the, the, the poor basically paid for the bankers um, at the last crash, and the poor are going to be the easy target for this as well. And I think um, law centers have a, pl- a really important part to play in protecting people. One of the things someone once asked me why they should believe my advice. It was a very complex um, immigration question. And um, I gave them free advice. And um, it was good advice. And it, and it worked actually in hindsight. But he's, he had had lots and lots of advice from private lawyers. And he says to me, I've, I've not heard of this route before. Why should I believe you? And I said, you should believe me because I am not profiting from you. And I think that holds true. We don't profit from the people we serve and therefore we represent something more important within the democratic process.
0: Pete, Peter, I just want to finish with you. Um and, and a lot of law students um and future lawyers listen to this podcast. Um and I, I wanted to I wanted to know if you have a sort of message for them, because for, for a lot of people um who are studying law at the moment, um and I and I speak to quite a lot of them regularly. It's a very daunting, the, the idea of going into some sort of social welfare, human rights law is incredibly daunting. It's incredibly difficult. Um, they're being told, don't bother, there's no, you know, you won't you won't be able to live, you won't be able to get a job, you know, all of that. Um, I, I'm guessing that you've come across this a, no- a number of times in your career. And I just wanted to know if you have a message for them.
1: We were, I mean, I was lucky growing up with student grants and and help and assistance and all the rest of it, and I fully understand the, the wear and tear on 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 law students, and and when they look into the future, it, it can look dim. But believe me, working in law centres or doing allied work for law centres is very exciting, very rewarding, emotionally, intellectually, and hopefully these cuts in legal aid. Uh, and and all the rest of it will not last, and there will be a turnaround uh, and and people will be rewarded properly in in terms of a reasonable wage for doing this work. So my message to law students is, if you can manage it, stick at it and and, and work in the community and hopefully things will change over the next few years, but I'm not pretending it's going to be easy.
0: Well, we we might in not in the not too distant future have a prime minister who was a legal aid lawyer <laughs> i'll leave it before i i i'll i'll leave you with that but also to say thank you so much for for to annie julie and peter for, um, for coming on the podcast it was absolutely fascinating and you do such important work you've had such an impact so thank you um and all the best
3: thank you adam okay pleasure
0: thank you very much to Peter Kendler, solicitor and founder of the North Kensington Law Centre, Annie Campbell, director of the North Kensington Law Centre, and Julie Bishop, director of the Law Centres Network. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. You can find out more about the course at goldacuk forward slash law. If you want to support the podcast, then please consider giving a few pounds a month www.betterhumanpodcast.com and you can also find the show notes for this week's episode at that address. So thanks very much. Also, one more request. If you enjoy this podcast, please do give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts and also a positive comment, which really helps get it in front of more people. Thanks very much. See you next week. I'm Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast.